Amen. Thanks, Ben. If you have a Bible, you want to open it up to wherever the book of Luke ends in your Bible or on your phone. Uh, We're going to deal with the last chunk of the Gospel of Luke, sermon number 84 in this series, and not one more. Really felt like we could squeeze it into 84 weeks. Um, While you get yourself settled, We've, we've asked ourselves a number of questions over the course of this series. Maybe one of the biggest ones is, what do you think of when you think of Jesus? Like, what's the mental image? What is the sort of disposition? What is the look on Jesus' face? Like, what fills your mind and your heart's imagination when you think about Jesus? As we were looking at the healings and the miracles of Jesus, we asked ourselves what we believe about his power and what do we believe about the work of that power today. As we looked at Jesus's interactions with Satan and the demonic, we asked ourselves what do we think about Jesus and his relation to evil. In the middle of our sin, how do we picture Jesus's posture toward us? What does Jesus have to say about any number of the issues that face his people today? Issues like finances or issues within society, matters of politics, even religious issues like Sabbath and fasting and prayer. What does Jesus have to say about those things and what do those mean for us today? As we looked at Jesus' interactions with those who were not his followers and as he's calling them to himself, we asked ourselves the question, what is our disposition toward those who do not know him. But all of that began with the premise. In the very first sermon of this series, which I expect none of you to remember, we asked the question, what is the goal of all of this? What is Luke's purpose in writing this? What's the goal for walking through this book? And I said that the goal is knowing Jesus. That's why Luke writes, so that his readers might have certainty about who Jesus is. That's why we engage with these texts. The goal is to have a right understanding of who Jesus is, to have certainty about why it is that he matters. The goal is to walk in dynamic, transformative relationship with him, not just to have knowledge of him in our heads, but to walk with the presence of Jesus. We've reached the final week of that journey. And my prayer pastorally along This entire series and even this morning in my office as I looked at my notes one last time before our services today, my prayer is that wherever it is that you may have joined us along the course of this series, that you have experienced Jesus, that you've seen Jesus, that you've grown in your understanding of Jesus, that you have broadened your thoughts about Jesus, that you've deepened in your love for Jesus, and that your heart's passion has been inflamed for Jesus. Now, next week, we'll move on from this series, but we're going to keep right on talking about Jesus. You don't need to worry about him disappearing from the conversation around here on Sunday mornings. He'll be front and center no matter what we're preaching through on any given Sunday or in any given series. But there's been something special about opening up to the Gospel of Luke over the last 80-some weeks and having our hearts wowed by the simplicity, the depth, and the wonder of Jesus's life and ministry and work in person. And we're gonna do that one more time this morning. And so if you've got your Bible open there in front of you, I'm gonna invite you to follow along with me, Luke chapter 24. 
I'm going to start reading in verse 36, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, which is also the end of the book. It says this, as they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed him his hands, or showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you have revealed to us the truth of who you are and the truth of who Jesus is. I pray simply this morning that your spirit would open our hearts and minds to the truth of Jesus, that we would be both comforted and awed by who he is. God, that we would rest in his presence and that we would be humbled before his grandeur. God, display for us the truth of who you are. Remind us of the truth of the gospel. By the power of your spirit, move us forward in obedience and in relationship to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Two final interactions here that pick up two almost unfathomable sides of Jesus. Not something that Luke is introducing for us at this point. It's two sides of Jesus that he has laid out for us clearly over the course of his gospel, and they get sort of exclamation points here at the very end of his book. And then I want to end with one encouragement for our hearts going forward. Those two sides of Jesus. He is near and he is glorious. Luke has painted that picture all throughout his gospel. We're going to see it one last time this morning. And I just kind of want to walk us through this passage and pull out some truths about the nearness and the glory of Jesus. The first one is this. It is the nature of Jesus to be near to his people. It's the nature of Jesus to be near to his people. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Luke, but there's one more picture of it. The resurrected Jesus has an interaction with Cleopas and this other follower of Jesus along the road to Emmaus, and then he appears among his followers. That's his nature. 
being with, near his people. It's not just that he's near us, though. There are some truths that we can take away from that that matter for us today. The first one is this. His nearness is not based on our location. Verse 36, as they were saying these things, in order to pick up the context of that, the previous passage, Cleopas and this other follower of Jesus interact with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They hurry back to Jerusalem where they find the disciples gathered together and everyone is rejoicing over the fact that people have laid eyes upon the risen Jesus. They're rejoicing in the truth of that and it's in the middle of that setting sometime that Jesus appears among them. Now, I don't know exactly how the mechanics of that work. I don't know exactly how the mechanics work that he disappeared from the sight of Cleopas and the other follower of Jesus. I don't know exactly how it works that he appears among the disciples. But there he is in the presence of his people and the location just doesn't matter. This is one of the great gifts of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He goes away at the ascension, but he does not leave his people on their own. The disciples get a flesh and blood demonstration of that. In the flesh with Jesus. Luke's record of Jesus' interaction with the disciples uh, post-resurrection is pretty streamlined. If you take all the gospels together and you combine them, over the course of 40 days, Jesus is with his people repeatedly. Luke just gives you one instance of that here in this room. In fact, there's a bit of a conundrum that takes place in the passage. Verse 36, Jesus stood in their midst. Again, not 100% sure how that takes place. But he has to multiple times assure the disciples and demonstrate for them that it's actually him in the flesh. In fact, Luke underscores that once in his narration, he himself stood in their midst. Jesus underscores it again in his own words in verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. This is not a ghost. That's what the disciples are afraid is happening. This is not some spiritual thing that's in their midst. This is a flesh and blood human being resurrected from the dead, standing in their presence. And Jesus does all of these things in order to demonstrate that. He says, look at my hands and my feet, and he lets them touch. He eats in front of them. Do you have any fish? And they give him a broiled fish and he eats the fish there in their presence. Why? Because ghosts or spiritual beings don't eat things in their mouth and have it travel down their esophagus and land in their stomach. He's trying to show them this is actually me, a person resurrected in the flesh. On the one hand, he appears out of nowhere and it leaves them startled and terrified. On the other hand, he's got flesh and blood, and they can touch him, and he eats. This is resurrected Jesus, and he wants them to know that, and he wants them to rest in that truth. Jesus, at the end of Luke's gospel, and also recounted again at the beginning of Acts, is going to ascend, and then he sends his spirit, and now his spirit is present among his people, and that's not bound to a location. In the church age, 
Jesus is near to his people by the presence of his spirit. And that's the case no matter where you are. So you don't have to be like in the room here in order to be in the presence of Jesus. You don't have to be in America to be in the presence of Jesus. As our church plant gathers today in Western Asia, the presence of Jesus is as near to them there as he is to us here. And that's the case all over the world. It is his nature to be near to his people. That's not bound to a location. He does that now through the presence of his spirit. There's another thing we can take away from this. His nearness is not based on our performance. Look at what happens when Jesus enters the room in verse 36. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. This is one of the most beautiful parts of this passage. And I want it to be an encouragement to each and every one of us this morning. His nearness is not based on your performance, brothers and sisters in Christ. Just think about the disciples for a moment. Peter just denied him three times. All of the disciples deserted him as he hung on the cross and died there alone. Some of his followers were scattering after his death. Cleopas and his follower of Jesus are leaving Jerusalem, confused about everything that's just happened. All the disciples in the room at that moment, we're told, are scared and terrified. And Jesus appears in the room and says, what? peace. Not just calm, but like deep soul level peace. Don't be in turmoil. Have peace. I'm present among you. He's not there to rebuke Peter for denying him. He's not there to chastise the disciples for leaving him to die alone on the cross. He's not there to sort of like poke at them for having started to scatter. No, he's present among them because he loves them and he wants them to have peace. And if Jesus' nearness to his people was based on our performance, he would never be near to us, ever. Because none of us could do enough to merit the presence of Jesus among us. He's near to his people despite our religious performance, not because of it. You don't obey and Jesus is more near to you. It's not that you do good things or you have your quiet time and Jesus rewards you for that by giving you his presence. He's present with you all the time. He's near to us in our obedience, but he's also near to us in our failure. He's near to us in our repentance. He's near to us in our seasons of grief or confusion, turmoil, fear, and disappointment. He's near to us in our seasons of triumph and gladness, joy and excitement. That's who Jesus is. He's near to his people because he loves them. If you've taken nothing else away from this series, I pray that you take away the fact that Jesus longs to be near you. He wants to be with you. It's not that he's like begrudgingly, ah, this person received my grace for their salvation, so I guess I'm stuck with them. He wants to be near you. He longs to be with his people. That's why he came to the earth and went to the cross, that he might draw to himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And the end of all of this is that we're going to dwell with him. And he sends his spirit as the down payment of that, and he dwells with you now. And that's where he wants to be. It's not because he has to be. I was with someone from our congregation just 
earlier this week and we were having a conversation and we were sort of going back and forth about the nature of sin and failure and repentance and what that looks like kind of on a vertical level and what that requires of us on a horizontal level. And we're talking about the fact that despite sin and failure, we're still like children of God, but that can feel distant at times. And there was a moment in the conversation that has stuck out with me where this person just sort of mentioned that, but they feel like they've got to do penance or something like that. A little bit of self-flagellation and then I'll deserve Jesus to still be with me. It's easy to think that, but that's not the nature of the son. The nature of the son is that he was the one broken and whipped and crucified for your sin that you might be near to him His nearness is not based on our performance. Remember the father with the older and the younger son in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son? What does the son do when he sees, or what does the father do when he sees the younger son coming? He runs out there to meet him. What does the father do when the older son is standing outside the party in his self-righteous sort of like pettiness, refusing to go in? The father leaves the party and goes outside. It's the heart of, of the father to be near to his people and it is the nature of the son to be near to his people. And that's not based on our performance. Peace to you. You scared, confused, denying, scattering, abandoning followers. Peace. Third, his nearness is not based on our level of understanding. Look at verses 44 to 47. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus opens the scriptures and helps the disciples understand. He takes all of scripture, Moses, prophets, Psalms, Old Testament, lumped together, and he shows them how he has fulfilled it. He opens their minds to understand, and that's the same thing he does for us. If the nearness of Jesus were based on our current level of understanding, we would never have his nearness. It takes the grace of Jesus opening our hearts and minds to understand who he is in the first place. If that were left up to ourselves in our flesh and in our brokenness and in our sin, we would never come to understand him. Why? Mostly because we wouldn't ever want to. But it is by his grace that he opens our hearts, he opens our minds, that we might understand who he is, be swept up into his grace for our salvation, and then have his presence with us. That's his work. It's not based on our level of understanding. He does that initially by his grace and then he draws us continually deeper into understanding throughout the course of our life. He longs to be near. He continually helps us understand so that we might recognize, consider, acknowledge, and enjoy that nearness. And then verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things. All this stuff that I have done, all this that I have fulfilled that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in my name. You're witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. It is the nature of Jesus to be near to his people. It's not location-based. It's not performance-based. It's not understanding-based. And then his nearness empowers our proclamation. This is gonna pick up and run forward in the book of Acts 
but it is the presence of Jesus that empowers the proclamation of the gospel. It's Jesus who emboldens his people to share the truth of his life, death, resurrection. He tells the disciples that they're witnesses of the gospel and he instructs them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. That's what the Father has promised. Stay in the city until you have been empowered from on high with what the Father promised. That happens in Acts chapter two at Pentecost and since that moment, when the disciples were empowered to be witnesses, the growth of the church has been unstoppable. And that unstoppable force is not because humans are so wonderfully obedient and powerful. It is because Jesus' empowering presence is among them, near to, with them, and emboldening their proclamation. The Great Commission is cooked into that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I am with you, even unto the end of the age. It's his presence that empowers that proclamation. It's the wonderful tenderness of Jesus that we experience in his nearness. The goal is knowing him. It's the heart of the Father to be near to his people. One of the most frequently recurring statements of God throughout the Old Testament is for his people not to be afraid because I am with you. This has been the heart of the Father all throughout eternity, all throughout human history, nearness to his people. Thus, it's the nature of the Son. It's not something that just appears with Jesus. This is the heart of God. And if we're going to be people who know him, then we are to be people who receive, accept, and rejoice in his nearness. Then there's the other side of that coin, and that's the grandeur of Jesus. He's near, he's also glorious, and the ascension underscores that. Jesus' followers worship him as glorious. We often discount the ascension. I don't know how many sermons over the course of your time following Jesus you've heard about the ascension. I, mine is limited to like maybe one, possibly zero. We talk about the miraculous birth of Jesus. We often talk about his work and his ministry. We talk about his death a lot. We talk about his resurrection a lot. And then the ascension is just kind of like a tacked on fact at the end. Oh yeah, and then he like ascended into heaven. Cool. It's just sort of like this dismount to the whole thing that we just kind of assume is fact. It wasn't that way for the disciples, though. Look at what happens. He leads them out to the vicinity of Bethany, lifts up his hands to bless them, and while he's blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. And then verses 52 and 53 are loaded with emotive words about what that does to the disciples. They worship him. They return to Jerusalem with great joy. They're continually in the present, are in the temple praising God. This moment of Jesus ascending powerfully and triumphantly into heaven puts an exclamation point on the glory of Jesus in the eyes of the disciples. Gives them great joy, moves them to worship causes them to praise God continually in the temple. The ascension 
There are some wonderful theological truths. We can say a lot about the glory of Jesus. I want to draw some things out of the ascension here that would provide reason for us to worship the glory of who Jesus is. The first one is this. Jesus is glorious because he has ascended to the throne. We've talked a lot about Jesus as king throughout our time in Luke. We've done that because Luke uses kingdom language frequently. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is pictured as the present, ruling, reigning king of his people. And at the ascension, Jesus assumes the throne. Now here's sort of the theological tension of that. He's always been king. It's not that he becomes king in this moment. He always has been king. He always will be king. He did not cede power when he came to the earth. In fact, his miracles and his healings and his power over the demonic and evil were evidences of the fact that even while in the flesh on the earth, this is the king of the universe. This is the king of his kingdom. His ministry is evidence to the fact that he's ruling and reigning even while he's on the earth. And yet, he's not seated on that throne. At the ascension, he retakes his rightful spot. Hebrews 10 says that this makes a huge difference to God's people. Hebrews 10 says that priests used to stand at the altar making offerings that could not purify us. But Jesus, having completed the work he was sent here to do, sat down at the right hand of God. And from that spot, he now makes perfect those who are sanctified by him. We need Jesus in that spot at the right hand of God, seated on his throne. And he's glorious among his people because he's seated there right now. That's one of the wonders of the ascension. It's not the only one. The Jesus that is seated there at the right hand of God, interceding on behalf of his people, making perfect forever those that he is sanctifying, is seated there bodily. He is reigning right now bodily, and he's glorious for that. Look, it's not a spiritual idea that's at the right hand of God. It's not a disembodied kind of notion of Jesus at the right hand of God. It is a bodily risen Savior. All of the time Jesus took in that room with the disciples displaying the reality of the fact that he's flesh and blood resurrected, that body ascends up into heaven. I want you to consider two things with me. Both of them are going to require a little bit of imagination as a group exercise here. The first one is this. There is a flesh and blood, bodily, fully human, fully divine king seated at the right hand of God on the throne right now. No other human in all of history was qualified to take that spot. Sin makes it so that no one could come into the presence of the Lord. The sinlessness of Jesus makes him and him alone qualified to be there. He's the only one who could ascend in this way and sit in that spot. Sinless, died, resurrected, triumphant, and now bodily seated on the throne. It's not a thought or a construct or idea or a spiritual being who sits there. It's the flesh and blood God-man Jesus Christ. And the ascension matters because we need that man in that spot. And if he weren't there, we would all be lost. Here's the second thing. Think about that homecoming for a second. Jesus tells us in the three parables of Luke chapter 15, lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal son. 
that heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Imagine what heaven must have been like when the savior of sinners walked back in. Think about that for a second. Imagine what it was like when the eternal son of God who had stepped out of heaven and put on flesh with a mission to redeem the people of God returned to the throne having accomplished the task. Revelation paints this picture of all of the heavenly beings bowed down there at the throne. And when the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that made purification for the sin of God's people, takes the scroll from the Lord, these heavenly beings cry out blessing and honor and strength and glory and power be unto the Lamb seated on the throne. Imagine what it was like when he walked back in present there from all of eternity past, gone for 33 years, triumphant on the cross and out of the grave, ascended to the throne, reigning bodily, that man sits back down on the throne. Think about what that moment must have been like. The eternal son of God, bearing his human flesh in the marks of his obedience to the fulfillment of his message, uh, our mission, ascends from earth, receives his throne. I have to imagine the place absolutely erupted. Picture in your mind what it sounds like when Pat Mahomes runs into Arrowhead Stadium and multiply that by infinity. That's what heaven must have been like when the sun ascended bodily to the throne. There is an eternal, triumphant, victorious, sympathetic, gracious, merciful, kind, good, flesh-bound God-man seated on the throne. He's glorious among his people because he reigns bodily. He's glorious among the hosts of heaven because he reigns bodily. Number three, Jesus is glorious because he has inaugurated his kingdom. We've talked about the kingdom over the course of this series. It's been a little while since we sort of fleshed that out. When we talk about the kingdom, we're not talking about a realm or a place. It's a reign That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about kingdom, the rule and the reign of God over all things, physical and spiritual, moving everything toward the accomplishment of his will and his purposes. He's always ruled and reigned. He's always been moving all things toward the accomplishment of his purposes. But at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, that kingdom is inaugurated because he's now on the throne, ruling and reigning his collected people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. The king has come. He's called and is continuing to call his people to himself and his people live in obedience to him as king. If your conception of life with Jesus is mostly about him saving you from sin and then you just kind of enjoying the blessings of your salvation, your understanding of Jesus and life with him is incomplete. You've been called into relationship with the king of kings the Lord of Lords. He rules everything and that includes every last bit of you and me who are his people. He's near to us, which is a gift of his kindness, grace, mercy, tenderness, patience, goodness. But he's also holy and majestic. He's mighty, powerful, sovereign, and glorious. And it's the full picture of those realities. 
that lead us as his people to worship and bow down, to submit and obey, to fear and to reverence him. We're not overly familiar with the language of kings. None of us were alive the last time this space on earth had a king over it. We have a democracy. We have leaders that we elect, leaders that we can choose not to re-elect and thus remove from office. We generally carry negative thoughts and connotations about what a king is. At the very best, you might be sort of intrigued by the monarchy in England, and so you've got sort of like a voyeuristic curiosity about what happens with a queen. Jesus king. Jesus' rule and reign as king is not the same as like Queen Elizabeth's rule and reign over there, where there's like this parliamentary monarchy sort of thing where she's got very limited power and if she exercises it, it's cause for like national confusion. Jesus is actual king. He rules and he reigns and what he says goes. He's Lord, ruler, sovereign, powerful, mighty, Pick whatever word you need to substitute in there for king in order to help you understand what it means to be in relationship with him. At the ascension, the disciples get a big exclamation point on what it means exactly that this man, Jesus, is king of his kingdom. And in the book of Acts, we see their submission to him as king. And how that blows open the door for his explosive work through them by the power of the Holy Spirit as they demonstrate the kingdom, as they proclaim the kingdom, and as the kingdom expands. He is to be glorious among his people as king of his kingdom today, too. And last, Jesus is glorious because he's coming again. He had to go away in order to return. Without ever leaving, he could not come back. And when he comes back, he's going to finish the job, fully defeat Satan, and put a full and final end to sin. Because Jesus ascended, we can now look forward to his return. The kingdom has been inaugurated. With the ascension, we now await its consummation. And for all that's confusing in the book of Revelation, one thing is clear. There will be no debate or confusion over the glory of Jesus when he comes back again. Among his people, as we wait for that, there's to be no debate or confusion over his glory right now. He ascended before the disciples and there's no question about his glory. They worship him right there on that hill because he's worthy of their worship. It is the nature of Jesus to be near to his people and as followers of Jesus, we worship him as glorious. That's the beauty of Jesus throughout Luke, near and glorious. He's both of those things. And this is the bottom line as we sort of exit the series. My hope is that over the course of the last 84 weeks, however many of those you've been here or listened to on the podcast or watched online, my hope is that as we walk away from the gospel of Luke, we hold this in mind, that Jesus the Savior is more glorious than your mind can conceive and he's nearer than your heart dares to dream. You could spend a lifetime plumbing the depths of the glories of Jesus 
And then when you stand before him, his actual glory will exceed your grandest thoughts, not by increments, but by magnitudes of order. Scripture is not deficient in laying out for us the full glory of who Jesus is. Our minds are limited and finite and the boundaries of human language can only do so much. But if you give your life to opening the pages of those scriptures and seeking out the glories of Jesus, there will be enough for you to feast on every single day from now until the moment you stand before him, at which point the veil is removed and you see the fullness of it and you realize just how small your thoughts of his glory actually were. That's who we're dealing with when we talk about Jesus, the Savior, the King, the eternal Son of God who stepped out of heaven in order to redeem God's people. He's more glorious than your mind can conceive. And yet God has not just kind of left us to figure it out. He's given us the pages of scripture that we might try as best as we can to be awed by the fullness of that glory. On the flip side, you could spend a lifetime trying to wrap your heart around the full reality of Jesus's tenderness and nearness, his grace and mercy. And yet when you stand before holy and righteous God in all of his splendor and Jesus rises to your defense as your substitute, your conceptions of his nearness and gentleness and grace and mercy are going to look cold and pale. Not because you didn't try, but because you're gonna understand the full reality of the blackness and the darkness of your sin and the full sparkling white righteousness of Jesus Christ as he stands up as your substitute. And it will be his joy to do so. Not begrudging. It will not be because he's obligated. It won't be because he feels like he has to. It will be because you stand before the throne of a holy and righteous God and you're walked in and Jesus says, Nathan, he's here. He will rise up on Nathan's behalf and all of Nathan's sin and brokenness will be covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and it will be the joy of the Son to do that for his people and you will experience his nearness in a way that your heart never dared to conceive while you were here on this earth. That's who the Son is. More glorious than your mind can possibly imagine and more near than your heart would ever dare to dream. And so over the course of this series, I always sort of asked the question, do you know that Jesus? Do you know him? And if your answer is yes, my prayer is that we as a church would spend all of our days seeking to know him the best that we can to be awed and overpowered and overwhelmed by the magnitude of his glory and yet to cling tightly to and cherish the reality of his nearness every single day. And if you don't know him, my prayer is that the eyes of your heart and your mind would be opened so that you can get the first taste of his goodness, the first taste of his glory the first look at his mercy and his grace 
and his work on your behalf. To cover your sin and draw you into his presence. Jesus the Savior is more glorious than your mind can conceive. He's nearer than your heart dares to dream. And I'm going to end the series where I began the series and that's with a simple question. Do you know him? The Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. 